0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Broge is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area call toll free 877 924
1: 7980 Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth We welcome you this hour to the Bible line if you are a first time listener Uh, For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe it's a personal issue in your life, a challenge you're facing, a marriage, family, ministry, church issue that you want biblical counsel on, or maybe it's just a passage of Scripture that you're trying to understand. Well, if we can help by God's grace, we will do the best. Of course, we give preference to live callers, so we get questions that come in from just about everywhere, and sometimes it takes a month or two to actually get to the question. Uh, but with that said, uh, if you call directly into the studio, we will take your question live. And you can dictate it, or if you want, you can go on the air. With that said, again, the local South Carolina 843 Exchange is 525-1859. 525-1859 is the 843 Exchange, wherever you may be listening. Uh, you can also email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl. That stands for the Bible line, T-B-L at W-A-G-P dot net. Well, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started. We've already had some questions come in and we'll take them one at a time.
0: Indeed, Pastor, you were not kidding when you said some of these questions come from all over because Veronica from Toronto, Ontario writes, could Pastor Brogy help us dissect some sample statements of faith for those of us looking for a sound local church in our own communities? Westminster Chapel in Toronto, a church about 30 minutes from my house, is open, but should I be aligned with them? It appears to me they are not dispensational. There's no mention of the rapture or Bama seat, and they, she directs us to see the final state of man, only recognizes the second coming, not rapture, etc., Uh, Also, curious about the phrase crown rights of Jesus, which Mm. is in their statement. Uh Uh, It strikes me that uh, here in Canada, many of the churches that are open are reformed, i.e. non-dispensational. I wonder why that is. Does it have to do with uh, a kind of militant kingdom now stance regarding the crown rights of Jesus? And is it okay to agree to disagree on this issue? Except it's hard to do that when they effectively teach God has turned his back on Israel, etc.?
1: It's a good question, Rick. Why don't you bring up the statement of faith and go to the section uh, that she's asking about the final judgment, see if you can find that. Right off, when I see the title Westminster in the name of the church, it would probably tell me, oh, they're Reformed. You think of the Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster Chapel, and so on. uh, Those were definitely Reformed churches. Um, here on the final state of man, let's start there. So go ahead and read what it says. And, and by the way, this is a good thing she, Veronica's doing. Um, when you go to a church, you should read their doctrinal statement. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they believe it. A lot of the mainline <clears throat> denominations still have their historical doctrinal statements, but they don't believe it, or they use the same words, <clears throat> but a different dictionary to define it. For instance, um, if you're a cooperative Baptist, they'll use the word inerrancy. They don't mean by inerrancy what Christians historically have meant by inerrancy. So if you say, well, do you believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? They would say yes, but they are using a different dictionary. So it's very important that you define terms. Let's go ahead and read what they wrote here. All
0: right. The parent, uh, the headline reads, The Final State of Man, and it reads, At death, a person's spirit or soul leaves their earthly body and goes either to heaven or to hell. The bodies of both the saved and the lost remain in the grave until the last day, at which time they shall be raised by the power of God and rejoined to their souls. We believe that there will be a general resurrection followed by a general judgment, after which those which have truly been united to Christ shall be taken into the presence of God forever, and those who are impenitent and unsaved shall be cast into outer darkness forever." We faithfully declare with sorrow that we believe in the conscious eternal punishment of the unsaved.
1: Okay, so there's some healthy things in that statement. For instance, they recognize that not everyone goes to heaven, and those who are lost will consciously, which tells you they don't believe in annihilationism, uh, like some cults have taught, that some liberals, if they even believe in hell, teach that. uh, Even the most liberals sometimes would say, well, Hitler's not welcoming into heaven, uh, but hell, well, he's just annihilated. He ceases to exist. So they're affirming the conscious, eternal uh, retribution <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> of the lost. And God says that when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who don't obey or respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal eternal retribution, eternal fire. So God's very clear on that. Hell is forever. But uh, they speak here of a general resurrection uh, followed by the judgment. So that tells you right off they don't believe in a literal rule of Christ on the earth, that the next event is the second coming. Uh, We stand before God. They take passages like the great white throne judgment, and they put everyone there. But again, when you read the scripture carefully, uh, Jesus will speak about the kind of resurrection. An hour is coming, and he's not specifying how it's going to unfold, but where those who are born again will come to life, those who are not will go to eternal judgment. Uh, when you read Revelation 20, God gives us some more details. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, because of their testimony. He's describing contextually what we call tribulation saints. Every time you see the word saint, it's not always in reference to a church saint. There are Old Testament saints that are described. There are church saints that are described, and then there are tribulation saints that are described. And these are the people, it says, who did not receive the mark on their forehead. They didn't acknowledge Antichrist, and they got their heads cut off. Uh, That's the typical way believers will be persecuted during the tribulation. Uh, And so uh, here they are, they're in heaven. And of course, the rest of the dead did not come uh, to life until the thousand years were completed. So there is various resurrections that are taught in the scripture, and it's really inaccurate. And you really have to manipulate and just kind of generalize, really spiritualize the text to come to some other conclusion. Uh, Really, the next major judgment, it's called the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 3 or 2 Corinthians 5 or Romans uh, 14, 12, where it affirms that each one of us, speaking of believers, will stand before the Lord to give an account. We refer to that as the Bema seat. And the focus of the judgment of the just is it's often uh, described because the only people who are present at that judgment— are those who have been raptured and caught up from the church. Uh, God will evaluate our lives, our service. Heaven is a wonderful place for everyone who goes, but the rewards in heaven are not the same, which is why Jesus can admonish us to lay up treasure in heaven and not simply on earth. He's not teaching salvation by works. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. However, we are rewarded for our faithfulness. Uh, then at the end of the tribulation period, uh, at the end of the seven years, when Christ comes back with his church, first he comes for the church. We meet the Lord in the air. Then he comes back with his church, and he will literally physically land on the Mount of Olives. He'll split it in two. In between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount is the Kidron Valley. It's described by different names in Scripture, the Valley of Decision, Joel describes it. And God will bring uh, those survivors. Uh, He's going to gather the peoples of the world. How is he going to do it? I I don't know, you know. Are they going to be elevated in the air, standing there before him? I don't know. I do know that at the end of the tribulation, God, for instance, will send out his angels and he'll do a second regathering. There's a regathering that's going on today, and it's been going on for the last... Seventy hundred years where God is bringing the Jews from the four corners of the world. But then at the end of the tribulation, the final Jews will be brought back who didn't make it into Israel. Those who are believers, those who are not. Ezekiel 20 Malachi 4 describes the judgment of Jewish survivors. And, but then Jesus in Matthew 25 at the same time, the end of the tribulation period, describes the judgment of the Gentile nations. And so when you read Matthew chapter 25, he's saying, whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, my, my Jewish brothers, uh, is indicative of whether or not you have true faith. And so we often take those, you know, verses, you know, when did we see you in prison and naked and hungry? And he's describing the way the Gentiles will treat a Jew during the time of the tribulation. You'll either hate them and want to kill them, or you will defend them, and the difference will be where your heart is, whether you've received Christ. And then there's the final judgment of all times, and he goes on. He says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are the four corners of the world. And then he says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it. Read the text carefully, Revelation twenty eleven to 15. There's no general judgment here. In fact, the only people who are present are lost people. So it's really um, a sloppy decision to just have one general judgment. But that's what you have to do if you don't believe that there's a future for Israel. Uh, the Islamic, the militant Islamic nations of the world are threatening uh, the existence of Israel. But today we have what we call replacement theology, and those who are in the Reformed camp are typical of this. Now, some would call themselves Reformed, um, but they would still acknowledge a future for Israel. But for generally speaking, as a general rule, if you call yourself a Reformed Christian, you believe that the church is the new Israel. That's replacement theology, and they are delegitimizing the role that God has for Israel. They're saying God's done with the Jew. Uh, There's no future for the Jew. The church has taken the place of Israel. But God is not done with the Jewish people. He makes it very clear when he describes the new covenant that we as Gentiles are recipients of. Paul in Romans 11 describes uh, uh, an olive tree and branches that are cut off that we might be grafted in and enjoy the benefits. And so passages like Jeremiah 31 are quoted in Hebrews 10 as a reminder that people today in the church are recipients of what god also intends for the jews to know but he goes on after he gives the new covenant in jeremiah 31 and he makes it very clear and i i think it's so appropriate that he did this because he came to his own and his own received him not but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of god so it might be easy to think well you know, God's just done with the Jewish people. They they didn't experience and for the most part enter in to the benefits of this new covenant when he says days were coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the one that their fathers knew when I'll put my spirit in them because I'll forgive their sin. And right after that, he says, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, they can't, and the foundation of the earth searched out below, it can't, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel For all they have done. So God is affirming what He made, uh, the covenant He made with uh, Israel. It's an unconditional covenant. Now, there are aspects of covenants that God made with Israel that are conditional in nature. For instance, uh, we speak of the promised land. God gave the ownership of the land as an everlasting covenant. You know what everlasting means? It means forever to the people of Israel. But their ability to occupy the land was conditional on their obedience. Uh, Nonetheless, God's very clear, there's not one general re- resurrection. I just affirm four. The judgment seat of Christ, believers only, the judgment of Jewish survivors, where God separates believing Jews from unbelieving Jews at the end of the tribulation, the judgment of the Gentiles based on the way they treated Israel during the tribulation, because it will reveal whether or not they had true faith, and the final judgment of all time that Revelation twenty eleven to 15 speaks of. And even at the end of the millennium, uh well we won't go there but that that's enough for right now now there's another question in there that she's asking uh back uh the veronica from toronto yeah.
0: also she's curious about the phrase crown rights oh, yeah, of yeah, yeah. jesus oh yeah yeah
1: you're right 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 so that is uh an interesting phrase there was a gentleman by the name of uh a a um, archibald his daddy was charles Hodge i have his three volume systematic. And then there is his son, A.A. A. Archibald. Uh, I think it's Alexander Hodge. And he kind of came up with that. Now, you got to understand, again, these are men at Princeton Seminary. Back then, they believed the Bible. Uh, They're Calvinists. And by the way, why are there so many Reformed churches in Canada? Well, because of their historical Calvinistic roots. So, Uh, For the most part, a lot of the Calvinistic churches have kept the gospel, not all of them. But that's why you won't typically find, you know, churches in Canada that believe there's a future for Israel. That's not exclusively true, but that's generally true. But uh, uh, Charles, um, uh, his dad, Archibald's dad, Charles Hodge, he was a post-millennialist. So interestingly, he believed that The millennial reign of Christ would happen in this life, and it would usher in the second coming. So he was of the persuasion that things could get better and better and better and better and better. Uh, There's not—I don't know of any post-millennialists today. Um, After the First World War, most of them kind of dropped off. After the Second World War, there were none. And again, if you take just the plain reading of passages like Matthew 24 and so on, you don't view them as historical, that they've already happened, that everything in Matthew 24 and 25, with the exception of the second coming, everything in Revelation 4 through 17 is all historical. If you just take the plain reading, and that's how we should interpret prophecy, with the same principle of interpretation that we do with the rest of Scripture— then you can't come to the conclusion uh, that the world's going to get better, it's going to get worse. Well, Archibald, his son, A. A. Hodge, um, he was a millennial, so he didn't believe there was any future for Israel. But he took a lot of his father's post-millennial thoughts that somehow we could make an impact on the world. And so the whole crown rights movement, it came from the National Reform Association. They called themselves the NRA, nothing to do with the National Rifle Association. But the National Reform Association was this 19th century group of American reform Presbyterians, largely, who who said that they wanted an amendment added to the United States Constitution that would declare America officially a Christian nation— and that Americans should sh- submit to the lordship of Christ and they wanted written that into the constitution and by the way there's that the group still meets and so this doctrinal statement is affirming that the crown rights of Jesus is an expression that goes back to the 19th century of adding a constitutional amendment um you know to any given government they're obviously Canadian but they're affirming at the least that Jesus should be Lord over the nation. Well, he will be, just not yet. Not until he rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. It doesn't mean that he's not sovereign in heaven. He is. But God is letting man go his way, but there will come a time when he will shut it down. So you're looking for a church. What would I say? Would this stop me from fellowshipping with these believers? Certainly not with fellowshipping. Would it stop me from being a member well, it wouldn't be my first choice if I could find another church that believed that God was not not done with Israel. So we've got this reform movement that is now sweeping the United States, and you've got guys like John Piper, R.C. Sproul, who went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, and they brought in—it's a poison theology. It's poisonous. It really is. It is destructive to what God has revealed in Scripture concerning the Jewish people. Now, I'm not saying that these men are anti-Semitic because they were not, and certainly John Piper is not. But by not teaching about God's future for Israel, um, you open the door up for a growing anti-Semitic movement. If you don't really believe that to bless the children of Abraham is to be blessed in turn and to curse them— And look, and by not acknowledging the role that God has for them as the chosen people is very destructive. It doesn't mean, by the way, that just because you're Jewish, you're going to heaven. God chose the nation. People within the nation have to make individual decisions to receive Jesus or to reject him. And there's coming a day when they will, in mass, not 100%, but huge numbers, turn in faith and believe in Jesus. And by the way, what's kind of interesting, this question, Charles Hodge, I have, like I said, his three-volume systematic theology, is though he was post-millennial, he thought before the second coming of Christ, because he was taking a plain interpretation of Romans 11, that the Jews would have to turn and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. His son didn't believe that, he just believed that the church was the new Israel, Um, but anyway, so these are important issues. I hope that helps get you thinking a little bit, find the best church you can. And if it's the only church that's Bible believing in the area, then okay, go there.
0: All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. And we had a caller dictate their question a minute ago. They'd like to have you address the difference between baptism that is demonstrated by sprinkling with water as compared to Baptism with Full Immersion. Is there one method that is more scriptural?
1: Absolutely. So um, I have a handout. It's about 30 pages long. Uh, We give it to two groups of people. Those who attend our new Christians class, the discovery class, uh, we provide it for them. And we also provide it when people come to meet the pastor. And when they come to meet the pastor, this is a meeting that we have for people who are visiting the church. And we basically have uh, two requirements for someone to become a member of Community Bible Church. One is that they've received Christ as their Savior. The only other requirement is that they have been baptized since they've been saved. And so uh, those are the only two requirements, by the way, found in the New Testament, that you've been born again. And so as best we can tell, we try to... Um, discern that, and then are have they been baptized biblically? So biblical baptism is not infant baptism. So in the handout, I go through that there's not a single case anywhere in the New Testament where an infant is ever baptized. So the first possible record of infant baptism dates to about 197 AD. Um, but we know that this Practice didn't really become widespread until the late 4th, 5th century, in the 400s, late 400s. Um, with that said, a major motivation for infant baptism during those centuries was the high infant mortality rate. And the average Christian, of course, couldn't search the scriptures the way we do because it was in the language of the scholar. For about a thousand years, the principal translation of the Bible that most people read was Latin. Latin, of course, became a dead language, and unless you were a scholar, you you didn't know Latin, so you were dependent on other people to read the Scriptures for you. But infant baptism, called patio baptism, patio is child or infant, uh, their argument is from circumcision that, yes, the first generation of male adults uh, were circumcised after that their children on the eighth day, and so they argue, well, we can't dismiss that in the New Testament. There were conscious believers who were baptized. But after that, as a covenant agreement between God and man, we should baptize our infants. Well, number one, uh, circumcision obviously was for males only. Baptism is for males and females. Number two, circumcision was a covenant symbol that God made with Israel. Uh, In addition, uh, God commanded on the eighth day, But Jesus gave a command that uh, hasn't changed, make disciples. Sadly, that verse has been almost reinterpreted in people's mind, go therefore and do discipleship. The verse does not say that. By the way, just put the five instances in the New Testament where the Great Commission is found, and you will see it does not say that. But even plainly in its context, go make disciples of all nations since... Maybe 400 years ago, we've been calling this the Great Commission, and it's in deference to the limited commission given earlier in Matthew's gospel where he said, don't go to the Gentiles, uh, don't even go to the Samaritans, go just to the house of Israel, because God is a promise-keeping God. But then he broadened it. Make disciples now, believers, converts, you could say of all nations. What do you do with new believers? You baptize them in the name of the Father, then you... Teach them the whole counsel of Scripture. Now there are four household baptisms in the Book of Acts: Acts ten two and Acts sixteen one and Acts eighteen. And then there's a fifth one found in First Corinthians one. And in four out of the five, it tells you that every single person in the household believed. And so to read infants into that is really uh, not sound exegesis, not to mention just the meaning of the word baptism. The word baptizo, I know it's kind of a religious word in our day, but it was not necessarily religious in the first century. If I was a fuller where I dyed clothing for a living and I had a white shirt on like I'm wearing now and I wanted to turn it green like the tie I have on, you would take my shirt and you would baptize it, you would submerge it, immerse it, into green dye. So it is with um, believers' baptism. It is done by submission. There is a perfectly good word in the Bible for sprinkling. It's never used in reference to baptism. Only baptizo is. And so the manner is not accidental. Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? You can only be baptized, Philip said to the eunuch, unless you first believe. So again, that's consistent with the order in the Great Commission. Make disciples, make believers, then you baptize them. Baptism always follows. It doesn't proceed, but you know, two, three hundred years into the history of the church, because of the high infant mortality rate, and people were afraid for their little ones that died, what happened to them. We want to make sure they're okay. Well... They go to heaven. God doesn't hold a little child who's unable to understand the gospel. He doesn't send them to hell for not being able to believe something they can't even understand. They go to heaven. The scripture is clear on that. Um, With that said, we reverse it. We baptize infants, later asking them to believe. And we really do, children in churches like this, Presbyterian churches and others, Uh, Lutheran, typically Methodist, not exclusively, but generally uh, a disservice. Because when you call them to be baptized, you have an opportunity to really share the gospel and to meet the questions that they have, if it's done properly. And certainly it's not done properly in many churches. A child comes down front and he says, I want to be baptized. And the preacher says, okay, Have you invited Jesus into your heart? Yes. And, you know, they don't even understand the gospel yet. And so we end up baptizing an unbeliever. And then we wonder when they walk away from the faith why it is that they're not interested because they were never really converted. But God said like when they crossed the Jordan River and they got on the other side, just like when they crossed the Red Sea and God had them place 12 stones, one for each tribe. And he said, look, when your children ask, hey, Dad, what do these 12 stones mean?' You said, well, that's, that's the day God, um, you know, divided the waters of the Jordan or stopped the waters of the Jordan and allowed the children of Israel to go over on dry ground. And so the symbol is to have meaning. And so when believers' baptism is practiced, children will ask. They do all the time at Community Bible Church, all the time. Hey, what are they doing, Dad? Can I do that? And that's an opportunity to really share the gospel and find out where your child is and to meet those questions. And when one goes under the water and is brought up again, and they're typically laid on their back. They don't typically go straight down. They go on their back. Why? Traditionally, historically, that's how believers were baptized because when you are dead, they don't plant you in the ground vertically, They lay you on your back. And what you are affirming when you are being baptized as you go down into the water and up again, symbolically you are saying, I believe in Jesus who went down into a grave and then was raised from the dead. I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection plus nothing that I can do in order to save me. So if this caller um, will call Search the Scriptures at eight four three five two five eighteen fifty nine, Just ask for the Search the Scriptures office. We will send you. It's a 20-page um, handout where I go through virtually every question that people have historically asked me about baptism. So I go through the theology of baptism, and then at the end of the handout, I answer some general questions, like at what age should a child be baptized? That's an important question. Uh, Why in some churches is baptism withheld until a person reaches a certain age? Um, That's an important question to ask and answer. Some churches won't baptize you until you're 18. Is that right? That's an important question. Uh, What if I was baptized by immersion before I became a Christian? Should I be baptized again? Of course, the answer is yes, but we walk through the Scripture. Uh, What if I'm physically handicapped or afraid of the water? Well, I've baptized even paralyzed people, and we answer that. What if I was baptized in another church by immersion after I was saved, and my new church doesn't accept it, and so on? So we got through some really important questions, but through the whole theology of baptism. All right, let's go to the next question, and we'll jump in. I think Anthony is on the line.
0: He is indeed. Thanks for holding, Anthony. You're on the Bible line.
1: Good morning, Pastor and Rick. How y'all doing this morning? Hey, doing well. Thank you.
2: I got a a question for you. it's like I think I meant, I think I mentioned to you once before, since I retired and my wife's still working, I'm in the house by myself. It seems like my prayer time and my Bible reading time is, is better. Mm. No distractions, you know what I mean? But my question is, when we pray as a church, Community Bible, CDC, on Wednesday night, now, it's just me, and if I'm wrong, you let me know. I'm just asking a question here. It seems like, uh, I know we have Bible study. Is our time of Bible study on Wednesday night different from the time that we have prayer on Wednesday night? Because it seems like our prayer is just an attack on. Mm-hmm. There are times, I haven't seen it, there are times when... I know you say, well, we're going to ask everybody to get on their knees, if you can get on your knees and pray.
1: Mm.
2: Does that carry more weight? Or when we pray as a church together versus maybe one or two people praying, does that carry more weight? Or... How important it is or is it more in, is it is it more important that we should have just prayer time when we meet together and nothing else but prayer time. And I believe I believe that we can cover a lot of things. I know a lot of times we you say we'll break up into little groups and pray, and I I, I really think that's good. Because for like on sometimes on Wednesday night, I can't even hear the people praying. And you can't even agree with what they're praying because you can't even
1: hear what they're praying about. Yeah, well, there should, they should be at the microphone, obviously. And I think maybe from time to time we need to just remind them, hey, when you go to the microphone, don't stand two feet away from it. Some people are almost scared of it. And so then it is difficult to hear. But most, most of the folks who go up to the mic will will get up close. And so it is a fair question. It's a legitimate question. Uh, certainly, uh, when you read the new Testament, okay, let's take Sunday morning. For instance, we pray corporately. Why do we pray corporately? Cause God commands it, uh, in the model prayer. He says, when you pray, say not my father who's in heaven, but our father who's in heaven. So he's teaching right off corporate prayer that God's people should pray together. You see that modeled in Acts 4. The two of the disciples are in prison. Uh, They're begging God, pleading with God that somehow he might intervene and release them. Uh, And indeed, you know, God responded and maybe not how we thought one was freed, the other was beheaded. Um, And we'll have a lot of questions answered, I'm sure, when we get to heaven. So on Sunday morning, should we pray the whole time? I think not, because certainly what you see in the New Testament in passages like Acts 4, when the church gathered, it was not only just to pray. They they worshiped, and one aspect of worship is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's something we're commanded to do. We're called to worship God in song, and it's disobedience if a person just sits there with lockjaw, unless maybe they got a bad throat and they just are unable to sing. God tells us that we should sing. And so, like, for instance, when he describes the church in Acts 2, day by day with one mind in the temple in breaking bread, why are they in the temple? Because, again, this is a transition period. Uh, There's approximately, some would put it at 30,000, at least 25,000 Jews that are been converted, so they meet in the temple precincts. There's going to come a time when they're going to be driven from that area uh, because they will be a real threat to the Jewish leaders who didn't believe in Jesus. They broke bread from house to house. Um, that's a description of, you know, fellowship meals uh, or really the Lord's table. They were taking their meals together. Those are fellowship meals. They were praising God. Um, The Bible teaches us that they were listening to the apostles' teaching, which is what we have in the New Testament books. The 27 books of the New Testament are apostolistic. They're either written by an apostle or they have the apostle's stamp of approval that God wanted to use this person to write, say, the gospel according to Luke. Luke obviously was not an apostle, But he actually gave us more of the New Testament than any other single individual. He was a doctor. He was part of Paul's missionary teams. And he wrote the gospel according to Luke. And he wrote the book of Acts. And when you take those two books together, Luke actually is a primary author of the New Testament because his two books together are longer than all of the Pauline epistles put together. So what you see in Scripture is really all of them happening. Uh, That's not to say that in our personal private life, we shouldn't have extended times of prayer. And so, you know, we can talk about, you know, what maybe we should be doing corporately. Uh, Sometimes on a Wednesday night, I'll say to people, I'll say, look, now, if you haven't had time alone with the Lord in prayer, then don't come up and pray tonight Uh, because it would be somewhat hypocritical. For someone to only pray corporately and not to have a quiet, personal time with prayer. God, God may lead a person to spend an hour in prayer. Jesus said, couldn't you tarry for one hour there in Gethsemane? Uh, he may have someone spend a night in prayer. Again, those are personal leadings of the Spirit of God as it relates to us. But he certainly wants us to pray corporately. And does it carry more weight to be on our knees? Not necessarily. Um, The position of the body certainly um, is not restrictive to be able to pray. Jesus is standing up praying on one occasion. He's kneeling on another occasion. On another occasion, he's prostrate before God. Um, You find people like Elijah. On basically on his face before the Lord. So there is a certain humility, I think, that can be expressed. And sometimes, like, for instance, couples come in and they're having trouble, and I'll say, well, among the exercises, the assignments I want you to leave today with is I want you to literally, physically, actually get on your knees in some quiet place in your house where the kids are not or whatever and pray. I had a gentleman come up to me recently, and he just said, Pastor, you said that to us. I just want to tell you, that it changed my life. He said, I hadn't been on my knees in prayer since I was a little kid. There's just something about it in terms of humbling oneself before the Lord. That's not to say our hearts can't be bowed and in total humility, standing up. They can be. Um, So um, anyway, but it is important to be able to hear. So I'm glad you called, Anthony. I'll make sure that maybe we give some refreshed instruction on that for people to be close enough. Let's go to the next caller.
0: 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, it's Alberto from Savannah. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line.
3: Yes, good morning, gentlemen. What do you think about this? Uh if uh, if if you believe uh, you're a child of God, right? You get because you made a slip of sin, then everybody starts accusing you that you're not a child of God, you lost of salvation. Then it's, okay, if that was so, then, okay, I'm going to leave the church. Why should I stay longer? But then at the same time, they don't want me to leave because they need me in certain position in church, and nobody's willing to fill that position. So they're, they're they're now they're willing to compromise, you know, their belief system or whatever, their doctrinal belief, just to keep me just for their benefit. In other words, they don't care. Really, I could be probably living in sin or shagging or doing anything, and they, don't, they, don't, they won't probably don't even care about that. As long as they don't want to fill that position in. You know, they don't care. You know, because nobody wants to fill it up and then no ones available because nobody wants to fill up to a certain position in church. So they'll get just, you know, they get upset and yell and scream because I, I don't want to fill it in because I, because the financial situation from a different state, they, they want you to move and back to the state and not, not considering your situation, you, you, just, you just can't move, you know, because of your financial situation. And they're, they're, they're yelling and screaming at you because of that, because they can't get their way and they're supposed to be. Christians people, you know, they treat you like a piece of trash, you know. gotcha all right,
1: so let me let me pick up i think i I think I got the gist of it, Alberto, and it's an important issue that you are raising, so first of all, let me just say that the scripture says in first John chapter one that we're all sinners, in fact, he's writing to us the first epistle that we might have fellowship with the Lord and with one another, and so he's distinguishing. In different places in the epistles, sometimes our relationship with God, oh, this must be true if you have a relationship with the Lord. This must be true if you want to have intimacy with the Lord. And so the Bible makes a distinction between our relationship with Christ and our fellowship with Christ. Our relationship is eternal. It can never be broken. And if we have a relationship, one of the things that First John underscores is that we will overall have a new life. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because he has a new seed in him. So there's a new direction. He's not talking about perfection. But he's talking about a new direction, a new lifestyle, a new walk. Um, and that's why he says if we say in the first chapter we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say, he says in First John one ten, that uh, we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar because his word from Genesis to Revelation teaches that not just unbelievers but believers sin. And so he gives us in First John one nine. If we confess our sins, believers, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. This is not a salvation verse. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with intimacy with God. The lesson Jesus taught in the upper room when he washed the feet of the disciples, and um, Peter was initially resistant Lord, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said, If I don't wash your feet, you have no participation with me. Well, then. You, know, you can, I'll take a bath. He said, no, he was bathed, only needs to have his feet washed. Not all of you have been bathed. Judas was still lost. Once bathed, always bathed. Once saved, always saved. But when you walk through this world, sometimes your feet get dirty. But with that said, so, so we're not saying that any member of any church never sins. We, we all sin. We need to deal with our sin. As I does him, I fessum, the farmer says. That's poor English, but it's good theology and you become aware of a sin in your life, you confess it to the Lord. It doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. It has everything to do with your fellowship with the Lord. However, there are some sins that are of the nature that demand more than just individual confession, but sometimes church discipline. So you said, to use your example, I'm, I'm shacking up with a woman. I'm not. I know you're not saying that of yourself, but the church maybe you're in. Uh, But we don't want to lose you, so, you know, just come on. We need you. Well, the Scripture says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. I'm reading Matthew 18. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church— let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. So Jesus is describing the process of church discipline, and it's in reference to, church, to sin that's of a public nature that brings reproach on the name of Christ. An example might be 1 Corinthians 5. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you. And he says, immorality of such a kind that does not even exist amongst the Gentiles, meaning the pagans. Here he's using the word Gentile synonymously with the term pagan, because most Gentiles were pagans. Well, what is this sin that doesn't even typically exist among the pagans, that someone has his father's wife? There was a member in the church at Corinth who was sleeping with his stepmother. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. You're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. I may not be physically present, but in my spirit as an apostle, I'm going to discipline him in the name of the Lord Jesus when you're assembled. And I with you in spirit, the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Because that's what happens when you are disciplined by God sometimes you die early you die sooner than God would have wished so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus John speaks about not praying for someone a sin unto death he's not talking about spiritual death once you're saved you're saved eternally but a sin that can lead to physical death and so in 1 Corinthians 11:30 because some were in a sin of a public nature that they refused to deal with. And when they came to the Lord's table, that should have reminded them that the very elements that they ingested said they were bought with a price and they didn't deal with their sin. For this reason, some of you are weak, sick, and some are asleep, some died. So um, it's called church discipline. So if someone in your church congregation is living immorally, That person needs to be disciplined. How do you do it? Well, you go and reprove the person in private. You don't say, hey, you hear what so-and-so is doing? You go to them in private. You become aware of it. You approach them. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. Who should be the two or three? Well, certainly those who are spiritual. And so typically this is done by the elders of the church. I've been the pastor of the church I'm at over 30 years. We've probably exercised church discipline 50 times, maybe more. Almost always it stops at the first or second level. And so no one hears about it. Occasionally it hits the third level. And we just recently, and we do it on a Wednesday night, it's family, and and uh, we do it after we're off the air, and there was a man living immorally, and we exercised church discipline on him. And we gave him two weeks, and now officially he has been dismembered from the Fellowship of Community Bible Church. What happens when you move, remove someone from the protective umbrella? Well, First Corinthians 5 tells us you're basically agreeing that this person's sin is so egregious and so hurtful to the name and testimony of the church that he needs to be removed. And it accelerates God's discipline if the person is born again. Now, there's members in every church who are a tear, who have never been born again. And so they don't experience the discipline of the Lord. Why? Because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He said, I thought he loved everyone. He does in a general broad sense, but he has a special affection for those who are his children. He goes on to illustrate, look, Dad, you discipline your kids. Why? Because you love them. If you didn't discipline them, it meant they weren't your kids. I never disciplined the next door neighbor's kids, only my own Not that I didn't love the next-door neighbor's kids, but I had a special commitment and affinity to those who are my own, and God is the same way. And so such people need to come under the disciplinary hand of the local assembly. You say, well, what if nothing happens to the person? And they don't seem to experience the discipline of the Lord. Two things happen. One, it's an affirmation to that person that they're lost. Because if you can be removed from the fellowship of a church and not experience discipline, it means you're lost. Number two, what has happened? The church's testimony has been protected. It's not like, oh, yeah, you know, down there at Community Bible Church, you can sleep with whoever you want, get drunk, live immorally, and be a good member. No, the church's testimony is protected that we believe what we say. Good question. Let's go to the next 843-525-1859
0: Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. if you have a question on today's bible line sonia from rincon writes i've been working my way through the book of job i'm confused about the significance of the behemoth and leviathan mentioned by god when he is speaking with job at the end of the book could these creatures god describes be dinosaurs and is this proof that dinosaurs are mentioned in the bible and that they were present before the great flood Thank you for answering this question and you are frequently in my prayers.
1: Thank you. Um, Well, yes, there are dinosaurs. We don't deny that. There's uh, some great, uh, not statues, but skeletons. Now, some skeletons are fake. They're more papier-mâché than they are actual skeletons and sometimes an artist's rendition. But there is definitely skeletal evidence for huge, large animals that lived on the earth. Now, remember, Job lives during the time of the patriarchs, during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Job 40, we have really a description of a dinosaur. I've turned there, behold now, Behemoth. What does Behemoth mean? Well, we don't really know what the Hebrew word means. It's just the name for a huge creature. You know, Adam went around and he called this guy an elephant and this guy a hippopotamus. In fact, some people have thought that this could be a hippopotamus or an elephant. No, not on your life. Behold now, Behemoth, which I made, as well as you. I'll stop that right there. If you have the New American Standard that I have here with marginal notes, it says the literal rendering, I made with you. So the day Behemoth, this large animal, was made, man was made. And that's an affirmation of what we read in Genesis, that they were both made on the same day, on the sixth day. By the way, we lived in Texas for... Five years, and if you ever get to go to Glen Rose, Texas, archaeologists there have uncovered dinosaur prints right next to human footprints, perfectly formed. And in some places, human footprints crossing over dinosaur footprints. Uh, pretty amazing. And of course, probably the Great Flood sealed them in rock the way they are. But those who say that dinosaurs lived millions of years before man evolved to his current status, well, there's all kinds of evidence that shows to the contrary. Um, So it says, Behold now, Behemoth, which I made as well as you, he eats grass like an ox. He doesn't say he is an ox. He just eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. In other words, he's he's a really strong animal. He bends his tail like a cedar. He can't possibly be an elephant or a hippopotamus, as some study Bibles put it. Show me an elephant or a hippo that has a tail like a cedar tree. If you've ever seen the great cedars in the Middle East, you know, this is no, um, this is someone with a huge tail. I mean, you show me uh, an elephant with a tail like a cedar, and I'll show you a kitty cat that has the roar of a lion. They're just two different animals. He bends his tail like a cedar. Um, uh, The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are like tubes of bronze. His limbs are like iron bars. He's just saying, this is a big one. If a river rages. He's not alarmed. He's confident, though the Jordan rushes into his mouth. Can anyone capture him uh, when on his watch? The answer, of course, is, is no. So they didn't hunt down these animals like they'd hunt down an elephant. Uh, and so God, if you remember the context, he's describing his greatness. He's the God who created the heavens and the earth and laid its foundations, and he's the one who made the largest animal ever created. Uh, You say, well, why doesn't the Bible call him a dinosaur? Because it doesn't use that term. The word dinosaur is relatively new in the history of man. Some date it to the 1840s. There was a guy named Richard Owen, Sir Richard Owen, and he supposedly gave it that name. Literally in Greek it means a terrible lizard. And uh, so it's not that they didn't exist. They were just called by different names, much like other things in Scripture. With that said, sometimes people say, well, how did they get into the ark? Well, number one, most of the dinosaurs that God created were relatively small. Uh, there were only a, s- a small number of dinosaurs that were very large creatures. He could have brought the eggs on into the ark. Uh, dinosaur eggs are about the size of a football, and they could have hatched out a year later. Uh, We don't know the exact gestation time of a dinosaur. Uh, With that said, he may have brought the smallest of dinosaurs on. And so even the largest of dinosaurs, when they were um, born, they were very small, some like sheep, and they grew into these huge creatures that God made. And so, again, we have, well, why aren't they here anymore? Well, they went extinct. There's animals every year that go extinct. When did they go extinct? Well, probably sometime after the Great Flood, when the dynamics of the Earth's atmosphere and geography was changed, and uh, eventually they didn't have enough to eat. When? I don't know. The Irish said they saw them as recently as 900 A.D. The Chinese said that they saw them in the 12th century. Um, In 1977, the Japanese uh, pulled out a water dinosaur out of the ocean. It was so big they needed a crane to hoist it out. Uh, They created a dinosaur stamp over it. So anyway, you can study my series in Genesis where I deal with issues like this. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us today as we search the scriptures.